Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com With a new podcast every day of the Premier League season, this is Football Social Daily. Liverpool's grip on the Premier League title is slowly slipping away, but will it go from fingertips to fingernails if they can't beat Manchester City this weekend? City leading the pack, but still plenty of ground to cover in this strangest of seasons. Klopp and Guardiola have run a two-horse race in recent times, but now other sides have joined the party. Manchester United are in the question. They play ambitious Everton on Saturday. Spurs were also in the running at one point, but will they be able to leap the fence that is West Brom after a recent stumble? And are the Foxes coming up on the outside? Wolves their opponents in what promises to be another entertaining weekend of Premier League action. This is Football Social Daily, your lockdown listen when it comes to the English top flight with a new show every single day of the week, every single day of the season. I'm Niall McCorn and alongside me today to run the rule over the forthcoming fixtures, we've got the Athletics Manchester City correspondent Sam Lee. How are you, Sam? Yeah, very well, thank you. Very well. Happy days. And Manchester United expert and host of the Masterclass podcast, Rob Blanchett's also here. Hey, Rob, how are you doing? Hey, now I'm good, mate. How are you? Yeah, all good. Yeah, pretty good. Um, ready to get stuck into this weekend's fixtures, of which the biggest game of the weekend is no doubt the one that takes place at Anfield on Sunday. That's where we're going to start. Liverpool versus Manchester City, a game which was probably season-defining not too long ago. And it actually may well still be that way this time around, albeit in slightly different circumstances. In seasons gone by, Sam, it was whoever wins out of Liverpool and City will go on to win the Premier League. I don't think there was much argument there. But is there a case here to suggest if Liverpool lose to Manchester City this time, that puts them as near as out of the title race for this season? Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't because like if City win, that's as far as I'm concerned, that's not it. It's not like right City are going to win it now. But if Liverpool lose, then I think that would be quite indicative of their problems. Not just because you know they will have lost three home games in a row, which is unheard of for for them in recent years, but sure. because City just don't win at Anfield. Like, and the City fans have just got used to the fact that no matter what, no matter how good their team is or how bad Liverpool's team is, they just don't win at Anfield. So that would really be yeah, a, a big a big sign of their issues. And obviously the points gap as well would be 10. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, this will probably be clipped up by Scousers at the end of the season if they do win it. But, <laughs> but 10 well, points behind with all these problems, like, that would be too much. I don't know what Manchester City's record actually is, Sam, at Anfield in recent years. Maybe you'll have a better idea than me, having covered the club. They've not won since 2003. Since 2003, wow. So do you yeah, think this that's is... the only you... win in 40 years. Wow, so do you think this is their best opportunity of the last 18 years? Is it fair to say that? Yeah, absolutely, because... Well, you've, well, I mean, not of the last 18 years because there will have been times when Liverpool weren't so great and, and City had Mancini in charge and they were stronger and that kind of thing. But it, yeah, it, no, it probably is. It probably, it probably is because City are going so well. Liverpool have got so many problems. And also, I mean, not that anybody's celebrating this fact, but there's, there's not going to be any fans in the stadium either. Yeah. And, you know, that, that Anfield factor has definitely played a part in, in those games. Or I mean, whether it's a thing or not, it's got into the heads of the City players. And, you know, it's something that Guardiola's acknowledged as being a, a real factor. So without that as well, mm. um, 
that, that's yeah, that's just another thing to reinforce the feeling that this is yeah, it is City's best chance of winning just because of the form of the two sides and and their fortunes at the moment. Interestingly enough, Robert, I'd be quite keen to take your perspective on this as a Manchester United fan, because City's next six games are against the current top seven in the Premier League, I believe. I mean, there's a question there of can they maintain their form because they're on a, an unbelievable run at the moment. I think now 13 or 14 wins on the spin in all competitions. And if they do manage to win at least five of those games against the next seven teams they've got coming up, is it fair to say the title is very much in the hands of Manchester City at that point, if that does unfold? I think it's in their hands right now. For me, City were the favourites all along from the start of the season, even with, with what Liverpool have done in the last two or three years. I just felt it was time with with the squad and where they were that, that they should be the team pushing on this season. And I think Guardiola's corrected that defence, hasn't he? You know, he's he's found a way with DS and with Stones. Uh, absolutely, you know, these next six, seven games now, that it will be crucial in terms of their own bid for the title. And you, they're just growing in confidence. You can even see that without De Bruyne, it's not really affecting them. Gundogan's kicked on a level. You've got Bernardo Silva back in the team. They just mm. look formidable at the moment. And they're just playing a style of football that's still very much within their own remit. You know, It doesn't feel like they're playing out of their skins to kind of get these victories. And this yeah. is why I think they'll actually beat Liverpool at Anfield because, as you were just saying there, there are no home games this season. Every game is a neutral venue, really, in many ways without fans. And Liverpool look fragile. You know, they look like mm. they're if they come up a team that that can deconstruct them and take advantage of their injured defence and poor form, that they'll actually lose a third game on a spin at Anfield. Yeah, which, as Sam rightly says, was almost unheard of. I mean, they've gone from having a nearly four-year unbeaten record in the Premier League at home to then losing back-to-back games against Burnley last uh, last week and against Brighton this week. Their next uh, fixtures, Manchester City, incidentally, are obviously Liverpool this Sunday at 4.30. And then they've got an FA Cup game away at Swansea. But after that in the Premier League, uh, at home to Tottenham, away at Everton, away at Arsenal. Then it's a Champions League game away at Mönchengladbach uh, before they take on West Ham at the Etihad. Then it's the Manchester derby on the 6th of March. So definitely some huge games coming up for Manchester City. Uh, They do look in good form. They do look quite imperious at the moment, it has to be said. On the flip side to Liverpool, Sam, who, as Rob rightly points out, do look fragile. And I'd agree with that terminology. I think they do look fragile. And as such, Jurgen Klopp had to use the uh, the January transfer window to bring in some defensive reinforcements. Two new centre-halves, um, Ben Davis uh, and Ozan Kabak uh, on loan, respectively, uh, from Schalke. And I think they signed, actually, Davis from Preston for a couple of million quid. He left them out against Brighton in the game they lost 1-0 midweek, which actually surprised me. I thought he would have given them... 90 minutes at least against Brighton to kind of adapt to the English game before this big game with City. Do you think that we will see him throw those two new boys in at the, at the back against Man City on, on Sunday? I, I mean, I don't know. It, like you say, it, it just feels like throwing them in at the deep end, doesn't it? Like if you're not going to play them against Brighton, obviously it's so soon, but I don't know, like two or three days of training, how much difference could that make if you're thinking they're going to go up and play against City who are you know, playing the best football in the league at the moment. I thought it was really odd that he left them out against Brighton, Sam. I I, I couldn't make sense of it. I mean, he was banging the drum about needing reinforcements and he was absolutely right. He desperately needed centre-half reinforcements. But, I mean, was he scared of throwing them in too soon and then getting injured? I mean, what what was the decision there? Well, I mean, maybe it was just the fact that it was so soon and, you know, Liverpool's style of play is, is, a, is a complex one. And, you know, to go True. from playing for, for Preston to Liverpool, that's... <laughs> that's a you know that's a big difference, but and even Schalke, you know, Schalke bottom of the Bundesliga, all, all, yeah, absolutely awful, like mm. historically mm. bad form in Germany. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think it's that crazy a thing, but I, I'm just trying to think of the benefits of why they would do it on on Sunday. And you think if they were to put in um, one of them at centre back, you can at least then if you put Henderson back in midfield, that that helps because not the issue they've had is not so much. The defensive ability but it's just what they lose from not having Henderson and Fabinho when he's been fit in midfield because then you lose the whole tempo and the pace and the rhythm that they set as well so I don't know I as much as it would it would certainly be seen as a risk to throw them in against City but if it if it helped restore that kind of tempo in midfield they wouldn't look as fragile as they have recently so I mean I don't know what he's going to do but I don't think it would be 
the maddest decision to put them in just because of what you know Henderson gives them in the middle, and that's why they haven't mm. quite themselves recently. But I mean, I'm sure Liverpool will be. I'm sure you wouldn't know there was a problem with Liverpool. The way yeah. they played those games against Spurs and West Ham, and they got those results, and everyone was thinking they're back. It will be that kind of performance, I'm sure. You know, they, they'll they'll look very good against City, I'm sure. Certainly, in Jurgen Klopp's demeanour after the game against Brighton, Rob, it felt like he almost conceded the fact that the title was gone. We've said about the fact that if City do win this, it's almost uh, not almost guaranteed. That's the wrong word to use, but certainly very unlikely that Liverpool will regain uh, the Premier League title. What do you think of Jurgen Klopp's kind of recent um, body language, I suppose you could say, and, and what do you think he might be doing tactically for this game with City? I think his body language and his whole demeanour has been very interesting. Now, I always say that with a manager, it's it's fine how they are in normal times when they're winning games, when they're losing games, and it's just your kind of average season. But how do they face adversity? And I think with Klopp, for the first time in his whole tenure at Liverpool, he's starting to look like a manager under pressure. Now, I know this has only been a short run in terms of bad results. They're not where they want to be. They'd obviously want to be in the top one or two and competing for the title and not, not nearly 10 points off City if they lose. But I think when you look at Klopp and what you know the issues that he's had to balance, I don't think he's got it quite right. So you're just saying there about what will he do going forward. I don't think he plays his two new boys at all. I think he'll play the the defence that he's played because they've not actually played that badly. Henderson and Fabinho, they've not had any issues defensively because of them. But it's the whole balance of the team. And I think that Klopp's maybe got that wrong in the last few weeks by sacrificing certain things to maybe keep his philosophy at the forefront of the club or the way he plays football. So I think it'll be very interesting how he plays against uh, against Pep. And I think Pep will be there, you know, chomping at the bit to really kind of put the knife in with Jürgen when he's down. Mm, certainly uh, Pep Guardiola's demeanour and body language, if we're going to flip it over to him, Sam, in the press conference has been very interesting. A lick of the lips and a crack of the knuckles has been doing the rounds on social media <laughs> after he was asked uh, about Jurgen Klopp's comments. Do you think there is a little bit of that? Obviously, these two sides have been so competitive, haven't they, over the last two seasons before now, going neck and neck um, in 2019 and Liverpool obviously running away with it in 2020. So, you know, it has been competitive. It has been close between these two sides. Do you think there is an element of Pep Guardiola wanting to get one over on Klopp? Not on Klopp. Um, I think they'll just want to beat Liverpool. I, I mean, I don't want to kind of fall into their trap, but it very much has been a, a one-game-at-a-time thing for City and for Guardiola throughout his career. So they're just going to want to win because, you know, they'll they'll just want, you know, it's good for the title. But I'm, yeah. I'm sure they'll want to beat Liverpool because they've had so many issues there. And even when they played well a couple of years ago and nullified that threat and didn't get blitz, you know, the three goals in 20 minutes, which has happened to them, three times at Anfield. The one time it didn't happen, obviously, Mares missed that late penalty. And that's why, you know, fans just don't think they're ever going to win there. So I'm sure that they, they, they want to win. But I, the thing with Klopp, they do have a lot of respect for each other. And I think you could tell with what Guardiola was saying. He did it in his sarcastic way. But he said, you know, I didn't expect that from Klopp. I didn't think he would say something like that for a reaction, like other managers do. Um, it, it was a strange thing to say, you know, saying that City have had two weeks off because of COVID, which just isn't true but it was delivered <laughs> as if it was a you know a matter of fact um but i mean maybe it was just wrong i don't, I don't know it's, it's an it's an odd thing to do but I, I suppose klopp's got it in his locker you know rob saying klopp looking like he's under pressure to be fair anytime they've ever lost a game or drawn points in unexpectedly he's he's not always been the happiest character so yeah it's no it's no surprise really um that he's looking a bit under the weather at the moment. But that was the same for Pep earlier in the season when things weren't going so well for City either. It's a stressful job. It, yeah, it kind of reminds me what he was like at the end of his Dortmund reign. Now, I'm not saying that's that's where he is with Liverpool, but I remember in that kind of last season when things went really badly wrong for him at Dortmund, he just became a kind of bundle of nerves and much more anxious and much more kind of aggressive in interviews and unstable. And now we have seen that at times, obviously, with him at Liverpool. But he, he tends to kind of play the role of Klopp, if you know what I mean. He's very good at kind of playing the, the shtick that he gives. But I just remember covering the Bundesliga in that last season when he when he was at Dortmund. It felt a little bit like this, where where he'd kind of 
maybe lost his own direction with with what was going on with his players and we all know how that ended so I think for him this is a huge game for his his future at Liverpool as well because he needs to kind of get back on the horse here and start riding it because mm. City are City you can see us going to start that gallop now you know if they, if they win this game they're going to be looking to win every game till the end of the season and Guardiola's just he's fixed that defence you know if we'd said that Diaz and Stones were going to be the, the centre-back partnership that would take them to the title I think at the start of the season most people would have laughed at that yeah no it's a fair point and you know I think with Jurgen Klopp as well he, he hates losing he just I mean winning has been kind of what he's done as a as a matter of just normality for him over the last few years for Liverpool so yeah interesting to see how he has reacted recently City fans Sam often have this idea of Pep Guardiola that he tends to overthink things and I think we have seen evidence of that in some big games uh, under Pep Guardiola's tenure in the last five years or so Um, he's often accused of of doing that do you think he might do something strange and shake things up for this game against Liverpool or will it be very similar to what we've seen already so far in the last couple of weeks yeah well the whole overthinking thing I know it's like the established thing and it's basically just a semantical thing really isn't it like one man's overthinking is just another man's preparation you know Guardiola spots things in (laughs) in teams and he you know he comes up with ways to exploit it and the thing is whenever he does that and they win so look played at left back against Liverpool in the league a couple of years ago and everyone before you know that that hour before kickoff when City fans see the team and they don't understand it and we don't understand it you know in the media as well that hour is so intense you go oh god and you start you definitely start to think that narrative's building or has he overthought this and then they win and nobody ever talks about it so it's like, so in terms of the whole overthinking narrative, I'm not really sure where to stand on it. I just think that, you know, he, he does things to try to win the game. But I do appreciate that maybe sometimes that putting Gundogan on the right wing at Anfield in the Champions League probably didn't <laughs> work out. Um, and will he try something different at the weekend? The thing is, recently, with the fullbacks in particular, there's been so many changes anyway, like Laporte playing left back the other night. Yeah. Um, Zinchenko playing Ake playing obviously been injured but sometimes even even in this run when Cancelo's been so good on the right a couple of weeks ago he played on the le- left back again and Walker was on the right I wouldn't be surprised if it was something like that um, his hands are kind of tied in a way you know Rodri and Gundogan are like really first choice mm. um, obviously it would be De Bruyne but it's probably going to be Bernardo Silva and then up front they've not really had the number nine anyway so there's always been a bit of rotation there um, nobody's going to be able to predict um, what he's going to do? No. Will it look crazy? Quite possibly. Um, quite possibly. But I mean, I don't. I don't know. I, I just think sometimes you. It's you know, it's 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 Liverpool. Like I know they've had their problems, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like you do need to try something different. Like Brighton. Nobody really thought Brighton were going to play like they did when they did. <laughs> so, I mean, all all teams will kind of adapt their approach a bit, and I, I don't think so. It'll be any different. And we await Pep Guardiola's team selection. Obviously, that we'll find out just before kickoff on Sunday. That one starts at four thirty. Before we leave this game uh, for the podcast today, Rob, I wanted to throw this last question to you, uh, Trevor Sinclair on Twitter. Uh, obviously, uh, affiliated with Manchester City, he actually claimed uh, that this is currently the biggest rivalry in English football: Manchester City and Liverpool. On sporting terms, I guess he has a case, but it's a bit of a can of worms. And I think, from a Manchester United perspective, you probably be quite keen to uh, to put that to rights. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't even think it's the biggest rivalry this season, is it? You know, I think the the title might end up being between the two Manchester clubs. So uh, Liverpool, you know, we might go another month or two down the line. I actually think Liverpool season is going to blow up. I really do. I just think the, the way it's going is there's some bad signs for them in terms of their chemistry and how they're putting their, their game plan together. But yeah, I, I would uh, I would disagree with that. Let's just put it that way. I think uh, I think our rivalry with both Liverpool and Manchester City might outweigh their rivalry between each other. I think I'd be inclined to agree with you. But anyway, Liverpool versus Manchester City is always one to keep an eye out for and it takes place on Sunday in the Premier League. 4.30pm at Anfield. Time to talk Tottenham now and uh, talk about managers under pressure. What about Jose Mourinho? His side take on West Bromwich Albion in the early kickoff on Sunday. That's a 12pm start. Uh, Mourinho had never lost two home Premier League games in a row before Thursday. He could possibly... He's lost three games on the spin for Spurs. I mean, with West Brom coming to town, Sam, how important does this game become for him now and this whole narrative of, of negative Mourinho? Yeah, um... Was it Rio Ferdinand who said the other day? It might not have been Rio, it might have been somebody else. But they said he's lucky there's there's no crowd in the stadium at Tottenham at the moment. 
Um, and I'm sure Rob will be really good to talk about this as well because it just feels like a lot of Spurs fans have got to that stage now where United fans were at towards the last year or so of Mourinho's reign when mm. it was just like, what are they doing with the but ball? It seems to have come far earlier than what we've seen yeah, in previous jobs. Yeah, it has done. Um, but I mean, you know, it doesn't always have to follow a pattern. You know, Mar- <laughs> Mar- you know Mourinho could surprise us and, and not get to this stage and he could not pick fights with everyone and it not blow yeah. up. And it, but yeah, I guess the pattern it, is the just Mourinho himself. Yeah, the, yeah the, but the way... The way that the pattern's been changed this time is it just seems to be accelerated for whatever reason. Um, Mm. It's funny, though, because it looked like that was going to be the case earlier in the season. And then they picked up again. And now they've they've hit this. And the the thing with it it being against West Brom is they are going to be, like Spurs are going to be expected to be the protagonist and have the ball and, you know, try and break down that low block. And it's not, um, you know, it's not just a throwaway cliche, that low block. I've just been looking at you know, touch maps and all, um, you know, heat maps and whatever for West Brom since Allardyce took over. And like, there's just a huge clump of bright red in their own 18-yard box. <laughs> like, that's where all their touches, like, so many of their touches have been, you know, just clearances and things like that. So Spurs are going to have to come up with something to break that down. And look, maybe, maybe this sounds like I'm not giving Mourinho enough credit if they do win, but it seems like it'll be one of those things where they would just be relying on having good players to get the job done, which is kind of mm-hmm. what United did under Mourinho a lot of the times. So whenever they got those wins and everyone started to think, okay, things are turning around, it wasn't, well, it was very rarely a great coaching performance. It was just kind of, well, well, a lot of the time it was throwing balls up to Fellaini, wasn't it? The plan B. Yeah. But there was just, United have got better players than 15 teams in the league. So they were going to mm. win those games. It, it's kind of similar with Spurs. And yeah, it, I mean, it does feel like a big game because they they have been on a bad run. And But more than that, the fans have really fallen out of love with the football. And the other factor is they all love Pochettino. They all love Pochettino. And they all remember the Pochettino day so fondly with good reason. And the football, they all remember how, how well they played. And it's just... I mean, it's Mourinho's own fault, don't get me wrong. But he's also kind of find, fighting a losing battle in terms of living up to you know what fans would want you look at the way that Tottenham are going at the moment and there will be question marks over Jose Mourinho and I've got a sort of a double uh, a twofold question for you I suppose Rob Uh, first of all we look at Big Sam and people talk about Big Sam the West Brom boss and say that he's a dinosaur he's been left behind the game's moved on uh, and things have evolved um, in sort of with him being in the game he's kind of been phased out of the game his styles his methods etc could you now start to level the same thing at Jose Mourinho? Is that fair? Is that unfair? He often gets labelled a serial winner, which I think is fair when you look at his trophy record and stuff like that. But do you think that maybe he's been left behind in terms of coaching? And second of all, just shed a bit of light, like what Sam said a moment ago, on that cloud of negativity that seems to follow him everywhere he goes. Well, in that final season at Manchester United, I described Jose Mourinho in my writing as a dinosaur. So it's quite interesting that you say that because... Watching all of those games and being at all of those games and kind of assessing United's tactics and how maybe his period at the football club unfolded, you saw that very early on in that first season, he tried to buy success. He brought players to the club, Pogba, Ibrahimovic, Bikriterian, Bailly, and there was some uplift. But after that first year, it just started to really go into a slump. Even when United came second in the second season, the football was absolutely abysmal. It was horrible. And then in the third season, it got to a point where I think Tottenham already are. Now, when Tottenham took Mourinho, one of the things that I said then was that Spurs fans were going to get a shock because there's a, it's an absolutely different world of football between looking at what Pochettino does and what Mourinho does, and mainly when how they face adversity. So Pochettino might try and play his way out and try and actually get the result through playing good football. Jose will do the opposite. Now, again, Harry Kane's injured. It puts Jose's back against the wall. Jose is going to park the bus against anyone, against every team. And that's what he did at United in that final six months. It didn't really matter whether United were playing Liverpool or Manchester City or we were playing a team from the bottom three. It just felt like the same game plan over and over again. And eventually that's not sustainable. And it's hard for fans to watch. You know, And like you just saying there about what Rio said, um, if, if there was fans in that stadium now, I think Jose Mourinho would really be on the brink. Uh, I think he's OK at the moment. I think you know, Daniel Levy might stand by his own decision to lose one of the most progressive managers in the game, like uh, Pochettino, who's now at PSG, and go with someone whose tactics 
are slightly prehistoric. So I, I think with Jose, you know, he'll try and do what he always does. He'll try and fight his way out of it and win one nil and climb the table. But at the moment, these last eight games, his record now is worse than the last eight games of Pochettino. And Tottenham fans are unhappy. There's no doubt about it. Two points from the last 10 games in the Premier League for Tottenham Hotspur. It's not been very good for them whatsoever. Sorry, two wins in their last 10 top flight games. I correct myself there. So six points in their last 10 games. So um, not particularly um, effective has the Mourinho method been for Tottenham Hotspur. I guess the argument from a Jose Mourinho perspective, if I was to kind of fight his corner, Sam, would be he was brought into Tottenham to win trophies. He's got them to a, a League Cup final. They're still in the Europa League. They're still in the FA Cup. So, you know, they do have competitions to play for. And, you know, the whole point, I suppose, people will say is Mourinho's gone in there to win them silverware. And he's got a really good chance to do that now, with this Carabao final. And who knows what they'll do in the other competitions. Was that always the case, that it was going to be a focus on cup competitions and not league action? Does he kind of have that in his armoury as ammunition, Jose Mourinho, to say, well, hang on a sec, you've brought me in to do a job. And so far, on the, the front that you've asked me to do the job, which is win me competitions, I'm doing all right so far. Yeah, I suppose this is just one of those debates where people could argue about it for hours because you sit, you sit on both different sides and, and you can never change because on the one hand, you've got the, the facts. Because basically, look, he won, he won trophies at United, which was obviously United won the FA Cup under Van Hart. But he won trophies at United. He got that League Cup in, which everyone said, you know, he won the League Cup at Chelsea. Then he used it as a springboard to go and do better things the next season. Obviously, he won the Europa League as well. We still got sacked for the same reasons we're talking about now because, it, you know, the football wasn't good enough and it was just a toxic place to be. So you can do both. And I suppose it's it's slightly different for Tottenham because there's not, you know, they're not as used to winning trophies as United have been over the last 30 years. But he could justifiably say, OK, well, I'm in the, we're in the final of this and we're still in these competitions. But um, I, I don't know, is that overall enough? Because on the flip side, you've got Pochettino who couldn't argue that, but... Everyone in everyone love love, uh, love the football, but and obviously there was all the the other achievement of just Tottenham in the conversation to win trophies anyway. You know he transformed the club, so so he did have that kind of behind him as well. Um, but I, again, football's just moved on. People want you know, big clubs want good football. Yeah, I think you're right. I think football has moved on, and I think it's interesting because I don't think he would have even considered the Tottenham Hotspur job four or five years ago. And I think the fact that Pochettino went in there and almost transformed the club into what we now consider Champions League side with this brand new stadium. Obviously, Pochettino didn't lay the foundations for the stadium. He didn't build it himself. But certainly it was under his tenure that Tottenham became a, a bigger hitter in the Premier League. And I think five or six years ago, I don't think Tottenham Hotspur would have even been in the realms of possibility uh, for Jose Mourinho in terms of why would I take that job? I'm bigger than that. So really interesting conversations to be had there over his future. Um, just a quick word on West Brom, Rob. They're 10 points from safety. Can we start writing them off now uh, as, as relegation fodder? Because I think it's going to go that way for them, unfortunately. I think writing off Big Sam at this stage in any relegation battle would be unwise. But you're <laughs> right. You know, that it, as the gap gets bigger and as they, you know, the games get harder for them and the season gets shorter, you would expect that they're going to be in that bottom three. But this could be a springboard game. I think, you know, again, we talked about Liverpool being fragile. I think Tottenham are fragile. And I think this is the kind of game that West Brom could go out and actually nick, be direct, you know, go over the top if you have to, just kind of play the percentages. Mm. You might actually get three points. Yeah, big blow to their midweek, though, with a defeat to Sheffield United. Anyway, Spurs versus West Brom, 12pm kickoff on Sunday in the Premier League. Time to talk Manchester United now, Rob. They take on Everton uh, at Old Trafford on Saturday, 8pm kickoff. How important is it for United that simply they, they win uh, against Everton uh, to try and reapply the pressure to Manchester City, who, of course, top of the table right now? Absolutely. I think that's that's the way it has to be. It's one game at a time. And it's like as we were talking about Pep and City there. You know, I think for, for Ole, it's just this kind of making sure now that game to game United maintain their standards. Because this has been the issue now at the football club, maybe for, you know, for multiple years, going back into the Mourinho era, that United have been able to have great victories, but then not follow it up. So, you know, the 9-0 against Southampton was a fantastic result, but it came off the back of two pretty average performances and a defeat to Sheffield United. So, so for United, this, this game against Everton, Everton are kind of, again, a bit of a yo-yo team, kind of good performances and then bad performances. United need to come out there and play the best that they can play. Uh, in terms of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, you mentioned him there and he's 
sort of squad selection this season. He's um, come in for a fair bit of praise, actually, for the rotation and the use of the players that he's got and, and the use of the squad, which is something we saw Sir Alex Ferguson do uh, plenty, which I guess is kind of where he gets that from. Do you think we'll see more of that this weekend against Everton, more squad rota- rotation? I think he'll go as strong as possible for this game because, again, Everton are, are a dangerous team and I think with Calvert-Lewin, you know, there there are issues there. Certainly if Everton are, are ticking, they're the kind of team that can beat you and beat you well. So I, I think the the rotation this year has been much better. I think when you look at the summer transfer window where they brought in Cavani and five players, that helped bolster his options and give him a a chance to rotate because certainly the bench last season was so weak he couldn't really change things within games but I think I think he's managed it well this year to to kind of keep United afloat to be progressive playing good football and actually winning matches and giving people minutes and and he's going to have to do that throughout the rest of the season exactly what Pep does at City he you know he shuffles the pack when he feels he needs to just two or three at a time and you don't see you know the mm. the changes it's seamless and i think with united he's getting closer to that but it's still maybe maybe two or three players short of being the kind of fergie rotation that you would have seen in the championship years any danger of the 9-0 maybe causing united to take their eye off the ball obviously destroyed southampton midweek so any sort of worries about complacency from a fan's perspective from your perspective or will that quickly be uh, straightened out by the management oh absolutely they could lose this game a hundred percent. You know, that's United, isn't it? You know, I think United can be the most potent team in England and play fantastic attacking football and counter-attacking and in transition and doing the things, say, that Manchester City can do really well. However, City can do it over a 10-game period and win every game in that 10-game in that 10-game spell. Mm-hmm. United will always have a blip just because of the makeup of the team at the moment. The good thing about the Southampton result, and I said this on kind of... <laughs> There's no uh, negatives the, about that result for me. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, no, well, no the, the good thing for it was, bar the result, was that it wasn't all about Bruno Fernandes or Marcus Rashford. Mm. And United's success this season has come through that, that portal of those two players being the force of nature. Now... Bruno got his goal, so did Marcus in those games and got assists. But it was a, it was a more rounded team performance and there were other heroes on the day, whether it be your Scott McTominay or your Fred who, who kind of came through. Uh, the, not the star names, not the, the names that glitter. Luke Shaw has suddenly gone from being a, a player that everybody wanted out of the football club and he now looks like the le- best left back in England at the moment. There's lots of positives that are coming through bar just the score lines and the victories. And mm. that's important if you want to build a championship team. You need everyone in it and everyone performing at the highest standard. Just quickly then, Sam, because we've still got loads of other games to talk about. Um, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Rob kind of touched upon him there. How good could he be and how dangerous uh, do you think he could be? I've been really impressed with him this season and last season for that matter. He's, he's looking like a, a really promising prospect. Yeah, really good. Um, I'm only saying this because they're playing United, but he kind of feels like he's going to end up at United. I don't know why that. Is. I don't. I just get reading that my mind. You're reading yeah, my mind. It's exactly what I was just thinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. He's he's good. Obviously, he went through a bit of a goal drought, but you know he worked hard to kind of earn the goal he got at Leeds. Um, yeah, he looks like a, a phenomenal prospect. Bit of a throwback in the fact that he's got what nine headed goals this season. One touch finishes is his uh, is yeah. his forte, isn't it? Yes, a bit of a throwback in that sense. Um, I mean, maybe I've been watching City too long, but there's you know. Not too many of their strikers again on the end of headers. Obviously, United have got Cavani at the moment now and again. But it's yeah, you don't normally put your forwards out on the wing and cut inside and scoring goals from the edge of the penalty box and whatever. Um, no, he's he's very good. But it's funny how you're both saying about you know maybe could United get complacent after this and you know you, there's always a possibility that that's the case with United. But Everton is such a funny team as well. Yeah. Like losing to Newcastle last weekend was not entirely unpredictable. Like I heard on the radio mm. before they were like Newcastle no wins in eleven. I went. I was like, Everton are going to find a way not to win this match. And obviously they lost. <laughs> but then you wouldn't be. And I'm just looking at like kind of the stats. since I've still got the the filter on since Allardyce took over. But for the last like six weeks, Everton have created some of the fewest chances in the league. They're like 17th in the table for chance creation. So no wonder Calvert-Lewin struggled. Um, Richarlison's kind of tailed off as well. Earlier in the season, when he got injured or well, banned actually after the Merseyside derby, it looked like they didn't quite tick without him in the team. But even since he's come back, there's, mm. he's not quite had that spark either. But James Rodriguez, is he's still doing his thing again. He's kind of picked up. So yeah. you just need to keep supplying Calvert-Lewin. And that'll mm. be the big question for Everton. Because like as I said, they haven't created too many chances overall in the last six weeks or so. So 
it depends which efforts and turn up. Yeah, yeah. It'll be, it'll be an interesting game because both teams have got that, that uh, capability to surprise. Yeah, it'll be interested to see whether Jordan Pickford uh, gets his place back in goal after Olsen's excellent performance uh, in the game against Leeds. Uh, Jordan Pickford actually, I think, cracked a rib after a collision with the post in that Newcastle United defeat last weekend. So we remain to uh, we, we wait and see whether Carlo Ancelotti will put him back in his side. Manchester United versus Everton, Saturday, 8pm. Still loads of games to go through here on Football Social Daily. We'll get stuck into them next here on the podcast. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to the show. This is Football Social Daily from Sports Social. I'm Niall. I've got Sam and Rob alongside me. Time to talk Aston Villa now as they take on Arsenal at Villa Park. This is the first kickoff of the weekend, 12pm on Saturday. Villa was soundly beaten by West Ham, Rob. They'll want to bounce back against the Gunners here. I mean, are Villa better than Arsenal? Are they the favourites in this game? Because they've played some decent football, but they've also had some um, adverse results of late. Again, I think at the start of the season, if we'd if we'd kind of entertained that thought that that Villa were a better team than Arsenal, I think people would have laughed. But I think there's some there's some belief in that. I think Villa are a team at the moment on the up. Uh, they mm-hmm. play good football. They seem to have a kind of good self-esteem about their game and and how they construct themselves. And then you look at Arsenal, and they're the complete opposite. Arsenal can be fantastic. They've got great players. Obviously, they're, they're highly reliant on maybe some of their younger talent this season. But they just look like a team again, a, a bit like Liverpool. We were saying about teams that are, are fragile. You, you just don't know what you're going to get out of them at the moment. And, and I think this is a dangerous game for them because Villa, you, you kind of now know, know what you're going to get from them in terms of how they start the match. But with, with Arsenal, you just do not know. Yeah, and that's a good point. And, and Arsenal won't have David Luiz. Interestingly enough, his red card from the midweek game against Wolves has been upheld by the FA. Jan Bednarik's red card for Southampton in the game that uh, they played against Manchester United has actually been overturned, which we'll come on to in a little bit. But they won't have David Luiz, which means it's now nine red cards in the Premier League since Arteta took over the Arsenal job in December 2019. Obviously, Leno got sent off midweek as well, so they won't have him available. But that's three times more red cards than any other Premier League in that su- in that time, Sam. Massive issues there, uh, disciplinary-wise. What what can Mikel Arteta actually do to address that and fix that problem, if anything? Because he can just shake his players in the dressing room and say, don't get sent off today, lads. But as soon as they cross that white line, there's so many mitigating factors. Somebody seeing a bit of red mist or having a rush of blood to the head or something strange happening or, or a bit of misfortune like the Louise one. What does Arteta actually do to solve that? Because it is costing his side. Well, that's a good question. I mean, how how many of them has Granit Xhaka got? Last six. But no, I don't <laughs> know. Like, I, don't, I, I think I, I, Louise I, has had at least three or four. So. Yeah, no, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, I suppose... Maybe it is an individual's thing, because Jack. I remember Jacko at the last World Cup. They were talking because I think they. There was some game and all the questions about beforehand was like, "Are you going to get wound up in this game?" And he was like, "I know how to control myself. I'm not an idiot." And it's like, "No, you are though." Like, there's a reason people think you're going to get wound up, and it's because you like routinely do. So, I mean, maybe it is an individual's thing because like, David Luiz got man of the match of the night, and then got sent off harshly he's just one of those characters we've all got mates that unfortunate things happen to them it's not always their fault sometimes it is he's like one of those like this kind of attracts bad luck or like calamity or whatever maybe that's just the issue with Arsenal but I mean what I feel really put on the spot by this question like what can Arteta or what can any manager possibly do to to stop this happening like you say with especially with the Louise one that was just bad luck but I honestly I I couldn't give you an answer and this is isn't just like oh this is I mean, I suppose it is an Arteta problem, though, isn't it? Those stats are Arteta problems. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know what a manager can actually do to stamp out that issue. It's it's almost impossible to know um, because if you've got players like Leno coming out and punching the ball into the stands like it's a volleyball at the Rio Olympics, then, you know, what can you do as a manager? You're just tearing your hair out and, you know, Mikel Arteta's got nice hair, so I think you probably want to keep that in check. Aston Villa against Arsenal, 12pm Saturday. Uh, Fulham against West Ham, a London derby, and I think West Ham are probably making a case for being the best side in London this season. They go to Craven Cottage Saturday, 5.30. 
30. Um, let's talk about West Ham in a sec, but first, Fulham, Sam. Uh, they currently have the best chance of survival out of the bottom three in terms of points, in terms of probably style of play and how they're looking. Um, if they lose against West Ham, I think that they're in a similar boat to West Brom, aren't they, in terms of uh, it being real a real struggle for them to, to stay up? Yeah, it's... Losing losing to West Ham this weekend would certainly... Hmm. Oh, no, I don't know. I don't get that feeling, actually. I, I still get... I, maybe this is just a narrative that's stuck, but I still get that kind of Fulham revival feel they 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 seem to get the results here and there that suggest something is coming and may, okay, maybe well they're, they're eight points off safety at the I moment know, at least eight points maybe maybe that isn't coming maybe i'm wrong but like the way we you know with the way we still think villa are you know are possibly a better team than arsenal you know they possibly are they've had two wins in their last seven games kind of thing so it's like yeah. we you can get too caught up on old results but yeah, mm. it's just these draws with Fulham. They seem yeah. stubborn, and you think, okay, but um, yeah, you might be right. You might be right. Um, obviously, losing to West Ham this season is is certainly no no shame. But that mm. it's yeah, it's the time of the season now, and Fulham's next game: Everton, Burnley, Sheffield United, Crystal Palace. So it's not quite the end, but they'd be going into those games thinking. That it would all depend on how they feel. If they feel sorry for themselves, or if they actually still got that fighting spirit to to nick a draw. But I, I'm probably wrong. I think that feeling I got that they're, they're about to do something <laughs> is is probably based on a result they got three months ago or something. Well, so. yeah, their last win, Sam, Monday the 30th of November against Leicester. Yeah, away, was, was two one victory. Was <laughs> it wasn't good win, massive win for them. But I think the draws uh, is definitely what's. Been there's a lot of draws. Yeah, there's a lot of draws. Loads yeah, of draws. Um, they, I think they're on the longest run without a win uh, out of all of the Premier League sides um, but they have drawn loads of games in that time so uh, anyway let's focus on West Ham now they've been exceptional I think uh, can, compared to what we were expecting of them at the start of the season Rob to what they've delivered um, they've been very very good do you think they are genuine top four contenders or, or they do you think that they will tail off at some point because you know I mentioned jokingly that some may consider them the best club in London right now but how do they compare with Chelsea and Spurs and Leicester and Liverpool and the like who are all chasing top four I highly doubt that they'll be in the Champions League places at the end of the season I think again with West Ham they're a, they're a form team they'll they'll give you good games for six seven eight games and then they might have a slump but you know where are they in that pack uh, in terms of London clubs they're right up there at the moment you know Chelsea have had their own problems they're trying to fix those now we've talked about Jose and, and Spurs but I think with West Ham, David Moyes has just done a phenomenal job there. You think about what he's working with, mm. uh, how he's, again, shuffled the pack to try and find uh, a way to win. And, and as I said in previous podcasts that we did together, uh, they they really do feel like they are David Moyes' Everton. Yeah. That's kind of, when I look at West Ham now from back to front, there's some strength, there's some power, but there's also some guile. They're, they're finding ways to win in different manners. And, and I think with Antonio up top, if he gets hot towards the end of the season, then it will keep... West Ham in good stead and I still think in terms of their football club anything in the top 10 for them is success sure. so you, you know and Jesse Lingard's gone to the club a, a really good start uh, and he's a guy who really wants to prove himself before the Euros so he's got a really good platform now to do that with a manager that knows him and they do have uh, barely any injuries I think just Arthur Masuaku the only long-term absentee for West Ham United so they've managed to keep players fit and you know they, they did take that risky strategy didn't they in the January window not to bring in another striker they sold Allaire uh, and never replaced him they've kind of put all their eggs in the Antonio basket and they know just how injury prone Mikhail Antonio can be so uh, certainly a risk for West Ham and David Moyes but with players like Thomas Socek chipping in uh, with goals from midfield I think that's now eight goals for him from that defensive midfield position this season which is the most for a midfielder for West Ham United since Dimitri Payet was at the club so definitely feels like a, a turnaround in fortunes for the Hammers this season they travel to Fulham on Saturday at 5.30 um, Wolves against Leicester is another game which takes place this weekend in the Premier League at Molyneux they picked up a much needed win midweek against Arsenal Sam did Wolves they still feel quite fragile though and we've put that down to injuries and a couple of other factors on recent podcasts do you think they are destined for a bottom half finish this season where they need to take stock and go again next year or do you think that they have the potential to to surge back into the top 10 uh, it's a you know, it's a pretty crowded top 10 at the minute you look at the teams in there and they all look like they belong like mm. Arsenal being 10th is probably about right but Leeds are only just behind them Look, Southampton being 12th is seems like a bit of a surprise because of 
you, you know, again, we've got those ideas in our head about how good a team are. And Southampton, yeah, no winning clearly... nine for Southampton. So, well, yeah, exactly. That so that goes to show the kind of the level they have to get to. That Southampton, we feel, are a good side. Leeds are obviously a good side, but you can't predict them one week to the next. And then it's Arsenal, Villa, Spurs, Everton, Chelsea, West Ham. I, I can't, I can't really see Wolves picking off one of those. So yeah, and yeah, to answer your question, I, I, I think they might struggle. And Arsenal were quite. They were looking quite all right the other night, the first 45 minutes, until the D- David Luiz red card. That that Arteta revival is kind of in full swing still. It was just one of those results. So I don't mm. I don't necessarily think Wolves have turned that corner either. Um, but like, like you say, if, if you've covered it recently, you know we can talk about Wolves all day, and they're they're not they're not fun to watch. But they've no. not got Raúl Jiménez who scores all their goals. And, and no, Johnson. they've not got they've not got Raúl Jiménez. Um, obviously Doherty and Johnny Otto, um, one being injured and one leaving the club. Uh, that's a major outlet that they've lost from their wing-back positions um, and certainly I feel that there's plenty of, uh, of discussion points to be had over Wolverhampton Wanderers and why they're not doing so well this season but then again I think that was an interesting point that you made on a recent podcast Rob where you said well they are Wolves after all and we do forget sometimes where they've come from and, and what they're probably uh, should be expected of them as a club after those consecutive seventh place finishes I suppose you could almost level a similar thing at Leicester City considering they won the Premier League in 2016 now they've always got that to to kind of fall back on uh, and maybe it kind of increases their expectations uh, of what they're capable of just missed out on the top four last season look like they're making a better fist of it this time around it was around about this time of year uh, in 2020 when the results dried up and they ended up dropping out of the Champions League spots on the final day uh, to Manchester United and Chelsea in the end who finished in those third and fourth spots respectively but they do continue to find goals from all over the pitch in the absence of Jamie Vardy who uh, Brendan Rodgers says that he is 100% 100% confident will play um, or very confident he said will play against Wolves I mean, how big a benefit is that we kind of touched upon it there with West Ham and Socek scoring goals from midfield the fact that Leicester have found ways to score um, all over the pitch it's got to be a massive benefit to them yeah and it's a it's a huge part of their campaign if they can score goals with or without Vardy you know I think when Vardy's out the team you know that they've lost their talisman and they're kind of the point of the threat uh, and as I said I think a couple of weeks ago when, when Vardy was injured it was really about how did he, Ian Atra come into the team would he integrate would he score well of course he scored the other day so I think when you look at, at Leicester in terms of a, an outfit we talk about these other clubs maybe around the those competing for the European places. I think Leicester are probably the, the, the best placed team to actually put on a, a fight for the top four because they're consistent. So you, you get some consistency out of them and they've got upside in terms of that Madison's back this year and looks really, really good. And it's just the balance from the back four all the way through to the front line that they're a hard team to, to face every week. And they're going to pick up more points than they lose. Yeah, I think certainly with Jamie Vardy coming back, um, it's going to be a big boost to them. Um, but they've also got other injuries. Wesley Fofana's out, Dennis Pratt is out. Indeed, he's going to be put through a late fitness test for that game uh, against Wolves. So Leicester do have players to come back. So I think they're doing pretty well. And Brendan Rodgers deserves credit for kind of keeping them in that top four hunt. They take on Wolves this weekend. Still three more top flight games to talk about. And the next one we'll talk about takes place at Bramall Lane, where Chelsea the visitors will do it next here on Football Social Daily. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Why not hit subscribe and that way you won't ever miss another episode of the show again. Brand new podcasts every single day of the Premier League season. So uh, if you want to keep bang up to date with all the latest top flight news, make sure you do hit that subscribe button. Sheffield United take on Chelsea on Sunday. That's the final game uh, of the weekend's action. There, of course, is a game on Monday night. Um, But the Blades uh, take on Thomas Tuchel's side. Do you think he's slowly starting to build some momentum at Chelsea, Rob? I think people are probably still trying to scope out exactly what his tactics are and exactly what he's going to bring. Do you think he, we're slowly starting to see those building blocks being put in place? Very slowly, but I tell you what, it's dull as dishwater. It really is. <laughs> I, I watched the guy, I've watched every game, obviously, for work and looking at kind of how he sets up. And it's fine. It's a very tutorial way of setting up. We knew what he was going to do. 
But I already can feel that, you know, if it doesn't actually bear some immediate success, that Chelsea fans, like we're talking about Tottenham fans not being happy with Mourinho, I think the change in style might grate. So I actually think Lampard was not doing the worst job in the world. I think when you look at other clubs that have had troubles this season, it's a funny kind of campaign. So people trying to find their feet, new players, younger players trying to integrate into the squad. Really, patience was probably the key here at Chelsea. But I think Tuchel will will obviously have a fair crack of the whip. He will make them defensively stronger. They just might not be as pretty on the eye. Mm, what do you think he might be learning about his side, Sam? Because he's played wing-backs in recent games. I saw someone say that he's pinched Antonio Conte's formation as if Antonio Conte was the inventor of the three-of-the-back system, like as if he owned it, he patented it. Um, but still, he has played that system uh, with wing-backs and he's actually preferred Marcos Alonso, who's come in for a fair amount of stick from Chelsea fans um, for his roles in a back four where he hasn't looked very good at left-back. Interestingly enough, he's looked very good as a left wing back. Um, I'm not sure how much difference there is or nuance there is between those two positions. But certainly Chilwell, who they signed from Leicester in the summer, has been very, very good in a traditional left back role. But Tuchel seems to prefer Chilwell uh, as a traditional left back and Alonso as that left wing back. Do you think that we will see Alonso for the majority of the rest of the season now? Or or do you think Chilwell will get some time in that left wing back role, which seems to be what Tuchel's favouring? I think... I mean, I, I don't see why. I mean, I know Alonso has had that, a struggle with that transition in the past with that position. I don't see why Chilwell would be any worse off playing wing back. But I, I think Tucker's just experimenting at the moment, isn't he? He's, he's picking different players, and you know, James has been playing, as Pericot has been playing. Um, the, the English lads didn't didn't play first, but there's obviously going to be room for for Mason Mount. It looks like. I think he's just trying trying to see what works and what doesn't. Um, you know, does Hudson Odoi work while you're playing wing backs as well? Um, you know, does he does he do it? Does he cut inside? Is is he narrow? He's got to work out what to do with Werner. I just think Chelsea have got so many good options, and nobody's really quite sure how they all fit together, which was probably Lampard's problem. Um, he's he's just taken a, a few games to do that, and I mean, yeah, it's not mm. been like that. The first half, in particular, against Spurs the other night when. There was obviously no intention to kind of play or have the ball from from Spurs, and it was just Chelsea passing and getting to the edge of the box. Now talk about heat maps earlier. It just feels like everything would have just been in a line on the edge of the Spurs. Box. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was as far as they could get. Like so, mm. they haven't quite got that penetration down at the moment. But yeah, he's kind of he's he's putting those you know passing fundamentals in place he's getting the building blocks there and it's, it's only three games in he's having a look at a load of different players and if we have this conversation in a month the, the first 11 will be a lot more settled um, he'll mm. learned a lot more about them obviously Rudiger's back in as well um, yeah. he's a good cheap fancy football option like for <laughs> anyone who's counting especially with Tiago Silver Sam there. Well, there <laughs> but yeah he's, he's, he's learning isn't he he's finding out what he's, what he's and with the first few fixtures he had first game Wolves who are not in great form uh, then Burnley, then an out-of-sorts Tottenham side, and now he takes on Sheffield United. Quite a, a favourable run of fixtures, I think, if you are trying to build those blocks and put some sort of style in mm. place. Um, I was going to talk about Sheffield United, but what do we say about them now? We say the same thing every show. So if you are a Blade listening, apologies. I'm sure we'll talk about you at some point in the next few uh, podcasts that we do. Um, but certainly things uh, equally looking difficult down at the bottom there uh, for Sheffield United, despite their excellent win over West Brom midweek. But time to move on. Uh, and it's to St. James's Park where we do move. Newcastle versus Southampton, Saturday, three o'clock kickoff. Now, are we expecting a a massive response from Southampton, Rob, after they got destroyed by Manchester United by nine in the week? Or do you think that they'll go under as a result? Obviously, as we've touched upon earlier on in the podcast, Jan Begnaric's red card has been overturned, so they will have him available again against Newcastle. I think we'll see a huge response. You know, I think the the nine nil, it's a it's a horrible result, a horrible thing to go through. But we all know, like we just say now in recent times, Southampton are, are on a, a pretty bad run in terms of a slide in the, in the Premier League. Mm. But they're still a tough team. And I think whenever you've got Danny Ings available and you've got your main core through the middle with Ward-Prowse, and as you were just saying there, that the defence will be intact now, that red card's been rescinded. I think they'll be fine. you know. And, and you, you've been able to see with Hasenhutl in his pressers 
how much that defeat hurt him. You know, it, it wasn't just the the fact that he lost a game at Manchester United. It was the nature of the defeat and having to re-experience something that was probably his lowest moment as a as a coach in his career. To have that happen to him again, it was a it was a painful thing to go through. So I think there'll be a response to that. I think the players will want to will want to do that for their manager, and it's a good place to go. I think you know again Newcastle kind of bit of a yo-yo team. That uh, you see good things and then bad things. I think Southampton go out there and play to their strengths. It's it should be a good day for Danny Ings. Yeah, 11 uh, doubts or injury absentees for Southampton. So they certainly got their issues there, which I think some Southampton fans will be quick to point out as to the reason why they've not been performing uh, of late. I mean, Ralph Hasenhurtl, Sam, you've said you like him as a manager in the past on the podcast. He got high praise for the turnaround after the 9-0 loss to Leicester last season. Do you think we'll see a similar reaction over the next few weeks? I think the word turnaround is quite interesting as well because actually initially, as Rob says, with Danny Ings firing, they did look really, really good. But now they've gone on a bit of a slump again uh, and they're almost exactly where they were before around about the time they were beaten 9-0 by Leicester. So do you think that he has got enough about him to dust himself off and pick the players up and go again? I do think so. I do think so. Um, I think you know, with a team like that, when you've got like, every, every you know, top coach like this, they we talked about Pochettino, we talked about Guardiola and Klopp. Those, the systems they've got get the best out of their players and they make the players better. But obviously when the Southampton players, with absolutely no disrespect whatsoever, they're of a lesser quality than the clubs we've just mentioned. When you do miss that figurehead, that's that's where there's a bit of an issue. But in terms of them having, you know, turning things around like they did after the, the last 9-0, they didn't win for four games after the last 9-0. And that's when it looked mm. problematic, but it was only then when given the time did they start to emerge from it? But the difference then was they had two games against Man City um, and they played Everton as well. They, they didn't win so they played Watford. Obviously, this time they've got Newcastle, which is, you know, kind of the, a, a similar kind of thing to this year's Watford. Um, the only thing is they're just harder to break down. I would imagine Southampton would have a lot of the ball and they, they will be able to get back to doing what they want to do. It's not like they have to react to losing in such a way and then go to Man City mm. like they did last time and, you know, have change what they want to do and see less of the ball and and try and dig in they will be able to get back and play on the front foot so that gives me a bit of hope for for Southampton that they will be able to bounce back more immediately this time and I mean look mm. I, I don't I mean do do we know how they're gonna react everyone after the first 9-0 would have said well he's gonna go they're gonna get relegated blah 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 and they didn't <laughs> we don't know how, how they're gonna react but yeah I do like Hassan Hull and I will because they, they've got good players and they they've got a good system that works for them I'm going to give them that benefit of the doubt and I, I, I'm going to say that they can. They can bounce back. Well, Newcastle actually have looked better recently in terms of style since the, the new coach, Graham Jones, went in there, but they still seem slightly fragile as we saw after they took the lead um, early uh, in a recent game through John Joe Shelvin. They still ended up losing it by two goals to one. We talk about Newcastle absolutely loads on Football Social Daily, so we'll leave that one for now. Newcastle versus Southampton, Saturday, three o'clock. And we'll move on to our final fixture of today's podcast, Burnley against Brighton. Traditional 3pm Saturday kickoff. It had to be at that time slot because for me, this feels like the most championship Premier League game of all time. It's probably going to make uh, unremarkable viewing figures uh, Rob um, but actually if you look at where these two sides are positioned it's relatively important a match in the context of the bottom of the league yeah definitely and I, I think when you look at what Brighton have done in the last few weeks and, and their style of play even just throughout the whole season they're, they're a breath of fresh air really for a team that's fighting relegation or fighting the, to stay in the Premier League uh, throughout the campaign and playing the kind of football that they do and, and but I think with Burnley you know, Sean Dyche or Mick Hutnell, whoever manages that football club, it seems to be that he, he has that balance in terms of what he expects from his players. You know, it's a, it's a system that's simple. They know what they want to do. They know what they want to achieve. And you can't really knock how he plays his football because he's kept them up there for so long. So it's a kind of um, a battle of styles. And as they always say, styles make fights. Yeah, well, I, I'm pretty sure I know who I'm backing if uh, Sean Dyche gets in a fight with Graham Potter. I think all my money is going in the Sean Dyche corner, that's for sure. Uh, as for Graham Potter, since he's had his hair cut and made himself look like Paul Weller, Brighton seem to have been picking up results. <laughs> I'm just wondering why it's taken them so long, Sam, to start clicking up front, because I think that we discussed on a recent podcast, uh, myself, uh, you and Carl Anker, we said that between both boxes, Brighton looked like a Europa League side with the way they knocked the ball around. Um, but in both boxes, they've been they've been poor. However, recently they've been finding ways to score. Uh, and certainly it's taken them a long time to get to that point. 
Yeah, it has. And I, I think these are another step down on what that ladder, if you've got City and Liverpool at the top and then Spurs below and Southampton in the middle, in terms of they've got a good systems and they make they get more from the players. You know, Brighton, they've got a good system that gets a lot out of them, but they've got, you know, even lower quality players than, than Southampton kind of thing. So it's it's enough to play very well. And that's why you watch Brighton and it's easy to like what they do. But yeah, sometimes you know if you've got players who are capable of making mistakes at the back, or you've got strikers who haven't got ten Premier League goals in them, you've got a collection of strikers who might get four or five. Um, that's that's probably the issue there. But I, I don't know. I've, teams just you know there's there's confidence in football. They're, they're obviously on a run of good results. Winning at Anfield might might spark something into them as well. And, but they, you know they've got good players like Trossard, just as as one example. They've. They, They've got players that are creative. They just haven't got finishers. And like I said about Southampton as well, without Ings, even though Che Adams has stepped up a bit and he creates a lot and he and he, he chips in with mm. a few goals as well. He was unlucky not to score against United with that offside. Um, you know, Brighton don't even have a Che Adams, let alone a Daddy Ings. I think that's probably been their issue. But now they've certainly managed to keep those that run of clean sheets as City are finding themselves right at the top of the table. If you can keep those clean sheets and you can miss a few chances, it doesn't matter quite so much. So they've given themselves mm. a bit of a chance there for for their their strikers to to make hay, even though they're not you know the most clinical team around. I do wonder how this one will go. Burnley against Brighton Saturday, three p.m. I wonder how it will go, but I definitely won't be watching it. That's for sure. <laughs> that's it for today's football social daily. Looking ahead to all nine of the weekend's Premier League fixtures. Don't forget, Fergal Brennan will be with Pete Hall and Steve Shanyaski uh, on Sunday evenings podcast, looking back at all the Premier League action over the course of the weekend. But that's it for today's show. Thanks very much, Sam. Thank you, Rob. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. And don't forget to hit subscribe. That way you won't ever miss a show again. Brand new episodes right throughout the course of the season. Every single day of the week. You won't won't miss a single thing if you do hit that subscribe button. But that's it for today. And we'll speak to you again soon here on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Twitter at The Sports Social.